0: Right. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone, wherever you may be. Uh, Hello from a very snowy London. Uh, For those of you who don't know London well, it's rather remarkable that there's so much snow on the ground in London. It rarely happens. But much more importantly, today we're very lucky to have Alexander Hamilton uh, calling in from Baghdad. And we're going to both launch and celebrate his latest paper, for the Conflict Research Program, Iraq, published by the Middle East Center at LSE, is Demography Destiny, The Economic Implications of Iraq's Demography. I'm Toby Dodge. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department, but I run the Conflict Research Program in Iraq. So it was my pleasure to ask Alexander to submit his paper for publication. Alexander, this is the second paper he's published with Middle East, the LSE Middle East Center. Alexander is an economic advisor for the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO, based in Baghdad, where he leads the FCDO's economic reform program, Lucky Man. He completed his PhD in the political economy uh, at the University of Oxford, but of course, more importantly, he did his master's at the London School of Economics, which is why he's so fantastically intelligent, and also he previously worked for the World Bank. His area of expertise is the economics of fragile states. Specifically, he focuses on the application of political economy tools to better understanding and to support, uh, and to support economic reforms in resource-rich, fragile state contexts. Now, Alexander is going to tell us all over the next 20 minutes why we are going get- need to read his paper. Uh, I would agree with him whatever he says. I've read it twice and it is really fascinating, but very sober reading. I'll then start off the questioning and then you can uh, you could, uh, ask Alexander questions through the question and answer box on your uh, Zoom screen. Um, and then we're, I will take the uh, task of um, asking the questions uh, that you've asked to Alexander himself. We're gonna run from one o'clock, two o'clock uh, London time. So after 20 minutes, please have your questions ready. And then Alexander can engage in a detailed discussion with you about his paper. Alexander, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Tell us about, is demography destiny, the economic implications of Iraq's demography? Thank you. Um, thank, th- thank you
1: very much, Toby, uh, for that very, very kind introduction and, and greetings from, from sunny Baghdad, which is a, um, uh, a, a variance with uh, with London on, on the weather. Um, so, um, uh, I, I was thinking about how to talk about this paper and I think rather than sort of go through what the paper says, um, explicitly, it might be worth just talking to you th- about the story about why I ended up writing this paper because, um, uh, you know, I am, I, um, as, as, as Toby said, I, I joined uh, the Iraq team at uh, what was then DFID, what is now the SCDO uh, in April uh, 2019 as an e- economic analyst um, so, um, demography, while obviously in, you know, we think about demography and economics, it's not necessarily ha- doing an in depth analysis about demography, it's not usually what a- economic analysts do. Um, but um, I, I think in Iraq, um, and the, the sort of main motivation for writing this paper was in Iraq, actually, demography, um, because of the nature of the sort of political economy and, and the rentier state, is actually really, really central to understanding um, drivers of uh, fragility. Uh, in Iraq, and it's actually something that at least um, in the international community, as my personal opinion, and obviously this paper is, is my personal analysis, doesn't necessarily reflect FCDO thinking, is, um, is, a, is a really important thing that we, we should at least acknowledge and think about when we're thinking about what, um, what, what could possibly um, be, be driving uh, instability and, and poverty in, in, in Iraq. So um, I, I joined the uh, team in April um, two thousand and nineteen, and started like reading about the economy of Iraq, trying to understand it. And uh, you know, as anyone who's who's uh, even you know. Uh, you know, looked at the iraq economy in, in any detail, you soon appreciate that Iraq is, you know, one of the most oil revenue dependent countries in the world. Ninety over ninety percent of government revenues come from oil. Um, the economy isn't isn't very diversified. Ninety percent of export earnings are from oil. So oil is like a really really important. Like all government expenditure is basically derived from oil. Um, and, um and and then uh, so, so so obviously taking that fact um you know I then started thinking well okay well how how is this all used and you know again you find out quite quickly um that a lot of the uh, oil revenue is now used to create jobs in the public sector um at the expense of um you know direct provision of public service so the social contract is partly and this is a bit reductionist but is, is partly fueled by basically the government creates jobs in the public sector uh, for large sections of society, um, and that's kind of how how it how it works. Uh, while at the same time, it's not really able to invest um, as much in public services or uh, rebuilding and infrastructure for a variety of. Political economy reasons, but that's kind of the social contract. And unsurprisingly, again, you soon learn that changes and uh, we saw this last year in 2020 with the collapse in oil prices. Changes in oil price can have a big impact on on this kind of social contract and on the ability of the state to deliver. And if oil prices change for a long time, that can obviously be very destabilizing. So that's all. That that that's kind of um, all very um, kind of well known, uh, nothing controversial. But then I started thinking, well, okay, so basically you know oil prices change that can have a bigger impact on the economy and on the social contract but then what, what What? oil prices are basically being used to distribute rents among at least a portion of the population then my question was well okay well what what are the population dynamics because on the one hand you've got oil and oil prices on the other hand you've got the population so um, as part of my just uh, preliminary um, attempt to understand what was going on in Iraq I thought well let me let me look at some of the demographic statistics and it was only then really that when I started looking into this that I realized that Iraq isn't just exceptional even by Middle Eastern standards in terms of oil dependence but is also really quite exceptional in terms of um, where it is in terms of demographic transition and um, uh, uh, um, and uh, population dynamics um, and, and what, was, what, was, what was kind of really interesting to see um, Looking again at the data was um, how Iraq, Iraq's kind of relative position had also changed in the Middle East. So, um, um, a, a big part of the paper is just this, you know describing uh, describing the sort of um, Iraqi exceptionalism and democracies in 1960. Um, you know, um, the, the, the growth rate across the, the average growth rate in population in the Middle East and North Africa was about 2.8% per annum, which may not sound a lot, uh, but it, uh, if you have a population growth rate of 2% per annum, your population doubles every 35 years. So um, that, that, that's quite a profound um, change. But, and actually, Iraq at that time was actually growing more slowly than the mean average because the population growth rate was 2.6%. But now what's interesting, what's happened, fast forward to 2018, um, Iraq's population growth rate is um you know has has only gone down um marginally to 2.3%, whereas the MENA average has gone down to 1.7%. And interestingly enough, neighboring Iran, which used to have actually a faster population growth rate than um, Iraq, um which was a 2.8% the MENA average in 1960, has now gone down to 1.4%. So there was something going on there. Um and our population growth rate is, is determined uh, by, you know, deaths, births and migration. So I thought, OK, well, this is interesting. I'll, I'll dig a, a, a little more deeply into this. And, and most of the population change in MENA you know, is, 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 is primarily driven by changes in, in birth. So um, and one of the sort of metrics that we use to understand this is fertility rate, which is looking at the expected number of children, a, a woman who uh, lives through her reproductive years. Uh, will have. And um, just like in, with the population growth rate, the sort of Iraqi exceptionalism um, was really prominent there as well. So um, just, just, just to, to, to rain down some more figures on you, in 1960, your average woman in the Middle East could expect to have seven children uh, in her lifetime, assuming she lived uh, through her reproductive years. And in Iraq, that was 62 um, which, again, was below both um, the mean average and uh, the average in Iran, um, which was um, two, um, uh, 6.9. Now, fast forward to 2016, which is the last year we have comparative data, and the uh, mean average has gone down to 2.8 children per woman. And in Iran, it's actually gone all the way down to 1.8 um, um, children per woman which is actually below the high income in, in a high income context where we've got low infant mortality you need about 2.1 children per woman for the population to stay stable in the absence of migration and um, so iran's actually below that level and it's actually um i mean just for the sake of comparison below the what the uk's uh, fertility rate was at 1.9 iraq on the other hand the population the fertility rate has gone down but it's still much much higher than now the mean average at 3.7 and is in fact closer to the um, average fertility rate that you'd expect to see in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, which is um, uh, 4.3. So Iraq has become this very exceptional outlier that um, um, it wasn't before. In fact, the only other countries in the region uh, that are kind of comparable are uh, um, uh, sort of Yemen and Syria. So something 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 sort of quite interesting is driving this. Um, And then, um, so I got to thinking. Well, okay. So, um, if basic the basic social contract is around how the government allocates uh, oil rents to uh, buy the social peace, and oil prices affect that the other thing that is affecting that is obviously um you know what's happening to population because obviously if you've got more people um you have fewer and and oil rents don't vary although the you know by your domestic population um and uh in theory production in, of oil in iraq is determined by opec not by i mean that isn't always the case in practice um then something that that Potentially has quite an implication for the stability of the current social contract. So, we're all talking about changes in oil prices. And the sort of famous quote is you know, one, an annualized $1 change in the price of Brent crude uh, will yield 1.6 billion more or less uh, US dollars in the Iraqi treasury. So I thought, well, what's the impact of of, of the of, of you know of the of Iraq's very slow demographic transition? How does that impact on you know what happens to um, to, to the sort of ability of the state to to kind of buy the social peace by distributing rents? So this paper was very much an attempt to kind of explore uh, that space and understand that space. Um, but before I, I kind of get to the sort of analysis of what I found, it was um, I started looking into, well, what do we know about how population structures affect development um, and uh, political stability more generally? Um, and there's a there's a large literature, not not um not specific to Iraq, that looks at um, you know, the I mean, there's a famous literature um going back to what in the 1970s was known as the youth bulge, which possessed that actually, you know, show me a country's demographic profile, and I can tell you the likelihood of political instability. Now that literature has been refined over time, and uh now it's very much known as the conditional youth bulge, which says. Basically, if you have a very rapidly growing number of young people, um, that can either go one of two ways. You can have a demographic dividend if um, all these um, basically young people can be put, you know, can enter the labour market, uh, enter like productive employment. Um, then actually you can have a very, um, a very, uh, uh, you know, in, the, in East Asia in the 1950s, what basically happened, one of the big drivers of the East Asian economic miracle is you had lots of young people entering the labour market. Um, you did have a falling birth rate, so there were fewer young dependents, and you didn't yet have lots of old uh, older dependents. So you had lots of people who were, you know, basically able to contribute economically. You had a big um, uh, growth in sort of export-led, labour-intensive industries, and that was one of the main reasons that propelled the East Asian economic miracle. But in order to to sort of... now Iraq's Iraq's dependency ratio, although it's going through a much lower demographic transition than the rest of the MENA region, it is going through. It is starting this. Um, you are seeing a fall in in the in the fertility rates, so you're seeing proportionately more people in the working age population. However in order to get the sort of sweet demographic dividend, you need these young people entering the labor market, and Iraq has about 300,000 young people entering the labor market every year to have like job opportunities and prospects. If you don't have those, then this kind of um, population um, uh, um, momentum can actually prove to be very destabilizing. Um, And unsurprisingly, Iraq, um, you know, has one of the more challenging uh, environments, I mean, in uh, 2019, you know, it came out uh, as 171st out of um, 190 in the World Bank doing business in there isn't really a large labor-intensive formal economy outside the state sector which is funded by oil rents which are um, you know not necessarily not becoming more sustainable as the population uh, grows so um, you've got this um, you know you've got this ever-increasing proportion of young people who have very few um, prospects in the formal economy uh, who are under pressure to provide for their increasingly large households and um, that's that's you know that that's likely that's that that's likely something that we need to consider especially uh, when you've got such a large proportion of the international community worrying about stabilizing Iraq uh, i mean the the international community has spent literally billions of dollars especially since the territorial defeat of Daesh, to try and stabilize Iraq and support the sort of security apparatus but we know from this literature that actually you know the sort of uh, unmanaged demographic change is is one of the better predictors of instability. And so, from that sort of analysis, of thinking, well, what you know, what this is obviously something we need to think about if we if we um, care about um, stability and development in in, in Iraq. Um, so, off the back of that, I um, uh, in, in this paper, what I did was, was I took the, the UN helpfully provides. Um, uh, population projections. So it has a sort of median, low and high realistic population projections. And the IMF also helpfully has um, projections about um, oil prices and economic growth. So I thought, well, let's let's look at let's let's play around as economists like to do with a toy model, where we look at what happens to, um, you know, given the IMF projections on oil prices and production in Iraq, let's see what happens to the sort of per capita oil expenditures if we shift from the sort of median population projection, the high population projection, which is, is not that the difference between those two projections is not much, it's only about 320,000 people uh, between 2020 and 2020, 2024. Although, um, you know, in both cases, the population of Iraq increases by uh, over 4 million. So you still, um, so in the sort of high population projection, the population is 44 and a half million people by 2024. And in the median, it's 44.18 million. So it's only a, a minor variation, but I thought, well, that's let's just let us look, let's just see what happens. And um, basically, what that um, leads to is switching from those two is a, a fall in per capita um, oil revenue expenditure of the government of 0.72%, which sounds like a really small, it's like it's less than 1%. Um, but again, the, the compound effect of that is, is quite substantial. So another way of thinking about it that might help um, uh, appreciate the sort of magnitude of what this, this kind of, um, even this very minor demographic shift has, is if, if the whole of that um, adjustment on uh, of on, on, uh, population on kind of oil revenue expenditure was, uh, fell on one sector, um, and all the sort of um, spending in Iraq stayed the same as a percent of GDP, it would be equivalent to 7% of, um, um, of um, spending on the health budget, 9% of defense or 17% of Iraq's ODA. So, um, and again, obviously, in reality, it wouldn't all fall on just one sector. But it, just to give you an example of how big the magnitudes are, so that would be about 26 Um, billion dollars worth of less expenditure in real terms or in per capita terms so it's kind of like we always talk about we say well if oil prices go down by a dollar that's one you know 1.6 billion um, uh, less in revenues so this is this is this is the equivalent for example of of just under basically you know one and a half um, dollars fall in the oil price that is permanent Um, so given a certain oil price this is this is so this is kind of like what what this um, dynamic is doing that we really don't necessarily talk about is it's kind of undercutting the social contract regardless of the oil price that we just don't seem to have engaged with much so um, the, the reason I felt I really want to write this paper was partly to just kind of say well if we're saying that this is you know oil rents are really important for the political model it's not just oil rents; it's also what's happening with people and it was you know it's it, it's kind of really bringing to the fore that this is this is like a neglected element of of this essential um, uh, puzzle Um, and then the the paper does also um, do a little bit of um, analysis using a panel data set to look at what would happen because obviously there's the accounting element of saying well you know if you get minor changes in population what happens to oil or oil rents basically per capita. But then there's also, um, again, going back to the literature on economic growth, that if a country is transitioning um, uh, through the demographic transition, it can take a, you know, it, it, it's likely to facilitate economic growth in and of itself. And if you look at MENA countries, basically the panel data that shows that, um, it, you know, as you get demographic transition in MENA, one unit sort of decrease in the dependency ratio, uh, so a faster basically transition. Um, yields, uh, in, in year one yields a, a higher per capita income in year two. And when you interact a faster demographic transition with a more favorable business environment, um, you get an even bigger effect. Um, again, that, that's quite a simple analysis, but the idea is, again, is that like you have this kind of mechanistic accounting effect in Iraq's case because of the extreme oil dependence. But then you also have the opportunity cost of the dynamic effect of actually would probably help economic growth, especially if it was also combined with other reforms. So the paper is just really an attempt to, to sort of just kind of quantify and say, look, um, you know, back of the envelope calculations, this is a really big area that perhaps isn't, isn't you know, because it's a bit of a slow burn happening, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a big bang, but it's kind of happening every day and it's an issue. Um, this is like a really important thing that uh, we need to, to, to think about. Um, and then the paper kind of ends uh, briefly and again, as an economist, I feel less qualified to talk about this, but it, it looks at how, um, what, what is driving um, Iraqi exceptionalism in, in demography? Um, because obviously, you know, it, it, uh, and um, you know what the evidence suggests is, um, of, is, is that um, one of the drivers is the fact that um, in Iraq, um, much more so than other countries, especially Iran, um, which we'll get to in a minute, Um, the uh, opportunities for for people and households to kind of exercise their reproductive rights is very limited by the sort of um, limited healthcare system and also by information. Um, So Iraq um, is is one of the few countries in the Middle East um, and and probably one of the, if not the only, middle-income country where the proportion of uh, women who... Um, have access to modern um, contraceptive methods is less than uh, the proportion of women who want to have access to them. So 25% of women in Iraq say they've, they've got, um, they're, they're happy with um, the supplies or access they have to like modern reproductive healthcare facilities. 29% say they would like access but don't have sufficient access, um, which again is, is very different um, to other neighbouring countries. Um, and in particular, Iran. So, Iran and Iraq in 1986 had the same fertility rate of over six um, children per woman. And um, but what happened in Iran is in 1986, um, Iran actually introduced a very progressive, human rights-based family planning strategy that sought to empower households and individuals to basically try and um, you know understand and um, uh, the the importance of like. You know, taking control of their reproductive destiny and giving them access to the tools to do that. And uh, Iran kind of went through a very rapid and successful demographic transition uh, in the next 20 years that it had taken England and Wales uh, to go through in over 200 years. Whereas in Iraq's case, um, you have basically a um, that this didn't happen. And obviously, with um, uh, the additional wars and conflicts, what's happened is the primary health care clinics that used to provide access to some of these services also collapsed. So you had a worsening access uh, to facilities. And so that's one of the reasons why Iraq has become uh, quite so exceptional, especially for a middle income country. In this context, now um, fortunately, the, um, the, the the government of Iraq does kind of recognise that actually empowering people uh, to take control of their reproductive destinies is important, and has recently launched the uh, birth spacing and family planning strategy um, from 2021 uh, to 2025, which you know on paper is you know is. Um, is setting out all the right principles around having a voluntary um, empowering uh, progressive family planning strategy but as those of us who work in Europe know obviously there are lots of challenges around implementation Um, so there are things we can do and we also know that um, supporting um, reproductive rights uh, generally, not just in Iraq's case, is one of the most uh, cost-effective things to do. Uh, there's a famous um, paper that shows that you know $1 spent on supporting uh, reproductive rights can yield up to $120 returns in um, social, environmental and economic benefits. In Iraq's case, because of the extreme oil dependence, that I would suggest is probably higher because again um, if you know um, the sort of if oil rents uh, fall quite rapidly you could have political instability uh, to boot um, so um, it was so the paper is basically just a very sort of exploratory discussion of um, how uh, what why this is important why Iraq has somewhat become somewhat of an outlier in the, in the Middle East and um, you know um, some of the ways in which um, you know, know, things can be uh, improved. Um, I will stop there. I think I've gone over time a a little bit. So forgive me, uh, Toby. I'm happy to take uh, any questions.
0: Excellent. I think that was a fascinating summary of a very rich and fascinating paper. So thank you very much. I didn't think you did go over time, actually, because I bubbled on a bit at the beginning. So uh, there's a series of questions. Thank you. We we have uh, three already. So please uh, do... Um, uh, ask some more questions as well while I, I gather my thoughts. I'm very much taken with your counter example of uh, non exceptionalism which is Iran, and your indication that part of the problem Iraq has faced in driving down its birth rate is the health infrastructural damage of the three wars it went through in the last 20 years. So I suppose... Is this an is this an example of lack of infrastructural capacity in the Iraqi government? And if so, will the new uh, policy that you praised, I think, and, and that looks like a, a, a leap forward, suffer from its inability of the government to implement?
1: Great, great question, um, Toby. I mean, I think it's it, it, as with most like things, it's a multifaceted. Thing. So, so, so it's a multi-causal um, explanation. Um, one of the issues is the fact that um, obviously the primary health care infrastructure that used to deliver um, these kind of services has um, broken down. But also, I think um, the other, which is a, 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 the other problem, is. Um, because of the wars. But the other, the other issues is also, uh, as we know, Iraq, um, it, it's very difficult in Iraq for the government to spend, um, uh, to invest in kind of infrastructure. So on the one hand, you've got the wars that sort of destroyed, that caused this problem. But on the other hand, it's also very difficult um, for the, um, the political system to actually invest, not just, not just in primary healthcare clinics, but also other infrastructure, because the sort of pressure of public spending is very much to create jobs rather than to invest in, in, uh, in, in capital expenditures. So that is part of the problem. Um, there, there's also, I think, um, uh, again, um, other, other issues as well. As, I mean, it, it is really important to work on, on things like family planning, also with civil society and the religious establishment. I mean, in Iran, it was actually the religious establishment that um, got behind uh, you know, um, behind this. And, and that's also important in um, Iraq. In in some ways, I think that the fact that it's 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 not just um, it's not just about the government, um, you know, providing clinics, but it's also empowering individuals and to, to sort of be able to to make their own choices is the fact that also it means that in the solution, given that the the government has created a space and said, you know, this is important. We want to you know we we have a policy that is uh you know trying to support reproductive rights among the population is that it does mean that it's possible to also work with civil society to um you know to, to give people information and um to empower them so that also means that um it's not just dependent on kind of the government system although obviously getting primary health care clinics not just for for, for reproductive rights, but for many uh, other health benefits would be would be really, really beneficial. Just, Sorry, um, that was a very long winded.
0: No, that was superb. I, I just want to draw out some of the negative connotations of, of your report, because I think they're there and very stark. And I was ruminating when you were talking about the social contract with public sector jobs and the ma- you have great data from the World Bank in your paper about the massive uh, expansion of the public sector employment, the payroll, uh, from 2003 onwards. Now, if we think that has stopped with the financial crisis that Iraq is current, currently going through because of COVID and no oil price and the, 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 the budget crisis, I wonder if there is then going to be two social contracts based around demography. So it strikes me that if you were hired during the the, the, the the rich years of, of expanding uh, public payrolls, you will now be almost certainly in your middle ages and one would hope you would hold on to your your quite comfortable government job. Whereas with each wave of, of young people coming onto the job market because of this demographic bulge, they, they have little or no hope of gaining government employment. So you'll have possibly, an overemployed but underworked uh, state sector uh, population of a certain age, but then an overworked but underemployed uh, a group of young people. It, it, do you see evidence of that? I wonder if you have any data about the average age or the demographic makeup of of the state sector.
1: I, I mean, that's an excellent point. I don't have specific data, but I think um, what was really telling about that was obviously with the um, the protests in October of. Um, of uh, 2019 a lot of a, a lot of the people especially in Baghdad were young people and what they were asking for isn't necessarily reforms; they were asking for government jobs and one of the things that is going to be increasingly more difficult even if oil prices let's say they go to 80 and they stay at 80 for 10 years the real ability of the state to provide the same level of public sector jobs is going to go down because exactly you've got, you know at the moment 300,000 young people and that will only increase um even and if, even if population growth rate decreases, it will still increase in terms of the number of people for, for years to come. So, in terms of per capita, the ability to kind of distribute oil rents uh, to, uh, per capita, that is going down. And obviously, young people entering the labor market will, will be getting less than um, than uh, sort of middle aged or um, their, their middle aged predecessors. And again, that has implications for stability in the same way that if we said, you know, we think oil prices will go down by several dollars and stay there for a long time, we would be thinking about stability. We should be thinking about that from from the demographic perspective because they're they're, they're basically the numerator and the denominator in the simplified version of the social contract.
0: So October 2019, in in your argument, would be an example of the instability of unmanaged, or, or could be a forerunner of the instability of unmanaged demographic growth.
1: Uh, y- yeah, I mean, again, if you look at if you look at the, the, the like who was out protesting, it wasn't mostly middle-aged um, public sector workers. It was young people who felt, on on the whole, again, obviously not the only reason, but there were a lot, a lot, a, lot, a, a, a large portion of them felt that you know they wanted jobs, they wanted a future, and they didn't have one. Um, we, we, I mean, it's it's a really intuitive story, really, if you if you think you know. I mean, if, if you look at the Iraqi labour market, you've got you know the public sector you've got a, a, a small formal sector that is concentrated in um you know in uh, the petroleum sector which is capital intensive not labor intensive so not many jobs there and you've got a large informal sector um and you've got you know at the moment about three hundred thousand young people entering the labor market what what prospects do most of those people have
0: an excellent answer, and I think I'll go to the, the excellent questions we've got coming in, but I think, again, if you look at the, mass, the demographic data on the mass demonstrations in 2015, they were indeed populated by larger, better educated, uh, older people, and, and the, the, the great change from 2015 to 2019, which might explain why the 2019 demonstrations lasted longer, is you had more young people with a lot less Employment and a lot less to lose. But on that let that question, I now go on that point. I now go to to the questions our excellent audience have asked. So the first question I received is: Have you found any strong correlation between the oil price fluctuations and population growth rates? Question mark Based on the development literature, assuming strong correlation between poverty and high population growth rates. Do you think that any oil price reduction, uh, which uh, w- certainly increase poverty in, in Iraq, will then lead to uh, a population growth? So in a way, to ad lib on that question, we might get into a vicious circle where greater unemployment, greater financial stability could possibly, according to, to the supposition behind this question, drive even greater population rates growth.
1: Uh, yeah, so that's an excellent question. I mean, generally speaking, oil prices are, are kind of invariant to, like, Iraq's population growth because they're set basically production and prices are set by OPEC. So, um, I mean, only very indirectly would they be affected by uh, kind of short-term fluctuations in population growth rate. However, we do know that, um, uh, you know, the it, the um, increase or decrease poverty can affect, um, you know, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a childbearing um, in in different ways in different contexts. So, in context, mostly in high income countries or in countries where people have reproductive rights, a recession or a, will actually cause the the, the birth rate to fall because people will feel they can't afford to have children, but they have the the sort of ability to um, to control to control kind of um, to control that outcome. Uh, whereas in contexts where you don't necessarily have those controls, children can be thought of uh, more as a, a you know um, social insurance, or the, um, you know you don't necessarily have the ability to um, to to to, um, to plan to plan pregnancies um, as you'd like. So um, I don't think I, I think in the in the short run or in Iraq's case, it's, there isn't a strong kind of like short term link between the two. Um, uh, and uh, to what extent you get into a vicious circle will, will partly be dependent on the extent to which, uh, you know, uh, individuals and households in Iraq are empowered to take control of their own uh, reproductive rights.
0: Excellent. We have a series of questions now coming in and they're, they're of a very high caliber, as you'd expect from a, a Middle East Central audience. So the first one, uh, an old friend of the Middle East Central and indeed a former diplomat uh British diplomat in Iraq says, Is it possible to say how far the figures that you've quoted are affected by emigration, and I wonder if emigration in the past has been used as a a pressure valve on on this issue?
1: Yeah, so so um, just just to be clear, so in the analysis, in my sort of back of the envelope analysis, I was just looking at, I mean, the um, the population projections that the, the UN makes to assume a certain, like, um, level of net in and out migration, in Iraq's case, uh, out migration, um, uh, and... Um, but that you, you you still get a population uh, quite significant population growth just because the 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 impact of the birth rate. So you have over 1.2 million births in Iraq that massively outweighs uh, any uh, fluctuations in, in migration that have occurred uh, over the last few years. So the main driver of um, Iraq's population changes is, is is the birth rate rather than there isn't. Um, I mean, it'd have to be quite a substantial. Uh, change in the net migration rate for for that for for the sort of um, the effect of let's say net positive migration uh, to um, completely counterbalance what what is what is happening with the birth rate. But my calculation was just based on let's change from one population increase to the other and just see what happens. You can pick different numbers. It's just about just understanding what happens to oil rents even when you have a tiny change in the um, in in the population, which which could be either due to you know, increased uh, migration or the birth rate, just to see what happens with per capita rents.
0: So the next question directly interacts with a a part of your presentation that says, in October 2020, the Iraqi government published their new, as you said, national births, uh, spacing and family planning strategy for 21 to 25. I I suppose the question is asking you, uh, this should be key to supporting a realization of reproductive rights, is it, and do you think that policy is the right way forward? What do you think of the, of, of the policy published in October two thousand
1: and twenty? Yeah, so so I'm, I'm, I think um, I, I think the, the policy sets out a really good framework. I mean, I'm not a health expert, so um, but we I have I have discussed um, the strategy with health experts. So I I, I must confess to not being a, a, an expert on all the details, but the, the the policy is kind of based on international best practice about actually like thinking of family planning as a like as a human right, um, empowering households to to make uh, you know the decisions based on, on what what is actually right for them and giving them the information and the resources to do that. Um, so it kind of it, the 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 policy on paper embraces kind of best practice. Um, uh, I think that the big challenge in Iraq is always is about the implementation um, and you know there are lots of technical and non-technical barriers to that. Um, I mean, in um, in FCDA we're looking at how we can support. Uh, in, we're in the process of designing support for 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 the for the strategy. Um, uh, but I think in most cases, it's always a combination of. Um, obviously, you need kind of like the the, the government a- enabling environment, but then it's also working very much with uh, civil society, religious the religious establishment to kind of uh, drive through. I mean, there's no context in which it's just about the the government's policy, although the government's policy is really essential. And obviously, the the strategy that's been published to the extent that it creates a policy framework is is kind of the right one. But then that is an essential, but by no means necessary means for effecting change on the ground.
0: And and, uh, is it too early to say or have you seen support from the major here for for the national uh, birth spacing and family planning strategy? So,
1: so again, I know um, I, I know that um, both um, UNFPA, who are the lead um, agency, but also the government. Obviously, it's, um, you know it's it's been it, the, the the strategy has consulted stakeholders, which will include the, the the religious establishment in being made. And we know from other countries, I mean, Iran again, uh, paradoxically, is the example where it was actually the really important role of the religious establishment in the 1980s of kind of um, supporting supporting a, a shift. So. Um, it won't be a success if it doesn't have the support of all these different um, stakeholders.
0: Now, now the other half of of that question about the government strategy was asking you whether you thought that there were, uh, you see, more potential for progress in implementing the strategy in different areas, either geographical or sociological, and uh, was saying, for example, internally displaced people. So do you think there are kind of uh, sections of of Iraqi society that could be seen as 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 or promoted as leading the way in this in this uh uh birth, in family planning strategy
1: yes yeah, so, so paradoxically i think one of the areas um it, it ha- it, where it might actually be easier um although this is this is uh due to sort of uh, perverse reasons is um obviously in the camps because one of the big challenges about um uh, supporting family planning in, in, in Iraq is around the procurement of um, family planning products. Now, um, in camp context, um, there is a big global um, uh, UNFPA supplies, which is this big global... For, um, um, mechanism that um, UNFPA, uh, the United Nations Population Fund, has uh, where you can procure, basically, countries can procure um, commodities um, at very low unit cost, kind of uh, state-of-the-art that sedo uh, centrally is a big supporter of. Um, and in, in the Iraq context, um, uh, um, commodities uh, procured that way can be bought in, to, um, in the camp context, but they can't be bought in um, to support the the, the, the uh, the, the primary healthcare clinics outside those contexts. So paradoxically, there may, it may be possible to get actually, in terms of one of the issues that, um, uh, you know, the, the strategy faces in terms of being implemented is around uh, access. It's not the only one, but access to, to commodities. Um, it may actually paradoxically turn out to be the case that it might be easier to, to, to increase access in, in, in humanitarian contexts than other contexts, which you might not expect. Um, obviously, the other um uh the other the, the other context in which um you obviously have um uh you know you can have greater progress in kind of urban areas um in in reality most of the women um uh who have access to um commodities are actually um able to buy them in pharmacies um you, you know using their own resources um so a- again urban areas and also I think, um, you know, um, uh, wealthier households are basically better able to take control of their own reproductive rights and, and make uh, uh, decisions based on, on on what they consider best. So um, I don't know about other geographical factors, but I think those two, those two are probably the two easiest, so paradoxically kind of at opposite ends in some ways. Um,
0: Uh, So so you haven't seen or you don't have the data to see significant regional variations in population growth, say, between the north, the centre and the south of Iraq?
1: I I mean, there may well be. I haven't looked at that. I was just I I was I was just trying to model the sort of average uh, economic effect um, um, uh, across the country. um, But I I haven't looked at I mean, there may well be uh, variations, but I haven't I haven't I haven't explored that uh, in this in this paper.
0: Sure. Another question i ask that, that in other contexts, we've seen increasing education of girls leading to dramatic falls in fertility rates. And they'd be interested to in know whether you think this is a significant factor in Iraq, uh, especially given the impact of, of Iraq's various conflicts on, the, on, on, on girls' schooling.
1: Yeah, so, so again, that is, um, uh, there are many, many factors that, that can um, support uh, kind of uh, empowering individuals to take control of their reproductive rights. Girls' education is a big one. It is, on uh, average, uh, a, a, a big, big predictor of the ability of just making um, girls aware of, of what their rights are and what options they have. Um, uh, I think in the Iraq context, you do need one of the other big barriers. I mean, there is definitely a case to be made for more information, more education. Uh, that's absolutely right. But also, again, in Iraq, remember, there are there is a large there's actually a larger proportion of women and girls who say they would like to have access to family planning commodities and don't have that access then there are who uh, have access and 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 know uh, and are able to utilize these these products as well so it is it is definitely about information and um, again with the um, working with um, youth groups uh, uh, in a country where the median age is 19 is really really important to, to um, empower and education is, is definitely a part of that but also in Iraq you do also have the fact that you've got lots of you've got a large uh, minority of people who know that they, they should be able to have access to these um, services but don't actually have access, so it's, it's both.
0: Excellent. I just want to broaden the, uh, the focus out a bit to, to interact with the, the, your more overarching work on the politics of economic reform, and there's a, a series of questions around that. One has come from a, a, a businessman who has long experience of, of working uh, on the ground in Iraq, and he says, uh, what three quick impact things should Iraq do to improve ease of doing business?
1: Um, oh gosh. Well, well, I think I think there are um, got several things. I mean, some of them are, are faster than others. I think in some countries you've had. Um, so, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, um, You've been able I mean, Democratic Republic of Congo, if you look at the drink business schools, on average, they're, they're not far off from Iraq. But if you look at the disaggregate data, um, they've actually done quite well in, in how quickly you can register a business. Um, and they've done that by creating these Goucher Unique, which are these one stop shops where um, all the processes for registering a business are, are done in one place. Um, so you, you I, I mean, that would be something that you could do relatively quickly in theory. Um, and has been done in other contexts where the uh, administrative apparatus is very challenging. Um, I think also things like other reforms that have worked in in neighboring countries are around um, expanding um, the collateral registry or the uh, credit rating um, agency so that people can get credit scores, which would then allow um, firms to gain better access to finance. Because again, that's another, uh, alongside corruption, um, most business surveys show that like actually um, lack of access to finance is a, is a big issue, and um, this is a perhaps a bit more medium term. But obviously, again, Iraq, one of the, the biggest weaknesses in terms of the business environment, is the lack of a core banking system. Which again is is again, if you drill down in the. Um, Doing business indi- indicators, you'll see that it, the, the where Iraq scores most poorly in the sub indicators is actually around access to finance, where it's like I believe or I could be wrong about these specific. It's like 186 out of 190, which for a middle-income country is extraordinary, but it's due to the fact that you basically have still sort a of paper-based banking system and, and, and therefore effectively not a sound core banking system. So those would be some of the the kind of things, and then maybe also. Uh, Again, in theory, easy to implement in the short run, but I I guess more difficult, given all the governance challenges, would be things like having a mechanism for reviewing how new regulations promulgated by the Council of Ministers um, or the Cabinet uh, affect past ones. Because right now you get new laws and regulations coming out that can conflict with past laws and regulations and they're not um, compatible. And that just creates uh, even more legal uncertainty uh, which again is you know means that our business are more open to corruption and there's just also just no certainty about what the law is
0: a great answer thanks and again we've got a series of further questions on on barriers to reform and here's a question is there an appetite in young people in iraq to take jobs in the private sector even if it means less job security or is the preference to, to secure a government job even though it might not be as fulfilling or even financially rewarding?
1: Yes, yeah, so i i mean i think it's probably difficult to um to to generalize uh, uh, for for all young people i mean i'm sure there are um uh you know more risk averse um uh, people who who might you know who might prefer um a public sector job over a private sector job um, i think the the issue about answering that question is it's quite difficult to answer because there aren't in in terms of the former private sector there isn't theres uh, not there isn't there aren't a huge number of openings so it's it's difficult to to kind of gauge how much appetite there is i mean we there are obviously um uh, uh th- th- there's work being done by the world bank and others um uh, there are incubators in iraq where you you know you can see that actually there are there's lots of entrepreneurial um activity that that can happen and is nurtured in iraq so i think there are, there, there's there's definitely lots of people willing and able to work in the private sector and would be able um, and and again if you make the if you're able to support the formalization of the private sector um uh, also doing things like you know making sure that you know if you work in the private sector you can get social insurance contributions um, that would that would also open up and I think make more people willing. Um, to work there, but right now, most young people basically, if you're really lucky, you can get a job in the public sector, which brings a lot of benefits, like a pension um, and uh, or sort of the ability to also uh, borrow money, which you can't get in in the private sector so easily, or uh, you know, basically the large informal private sector. So it, 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 they don't really have a much of a much of a choice from which we could we could gauge that. But again, you do see there are incubators uh, impact out where young people do set up their um, their their own companies and um, yeah so I I think just like anywhere if if the conditions were better um, and you had a formal private sector I I can't see why lots of people wouldn't wouldn't be much more engaged in much more um, economically productive activities than they are now uh, where they're either trying to get a public sector job or working in the informal private sector
0: Right. So uh, again, I think this this may give you the opportunity to answer the question again in in a in a, in a slightly different way. But this is from a, a charity in, investing and in helping to kickstart small businesses in Mosul and on, on the Nineveh Plain. Um, and the person is is very much agreeing with your observations on the inability of national government to support private sector investment. And given uh, the the question says the, on, the likely ongoing inability of the government, the Iraqi government, to invest, especially in the face of the ongoing financial crisis, how might domestic infrastructure investment in the private sector be encouraged?
1: I, th- I think I got most of that. You broke again. Um, if I if I heard the question right, it was about uh, domestic uh, investment can stimulate private sector growth. Is yes, that or, is that
0: how you encourage domestic uh, investment in? Uh, private sector?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's a that's a that's a great question. I, I think there are lots of potential ways. I mean, one way is we've seen in incubators in Baghdad, that um, um, they've tried to, to uh, this isn't really investment, but it's trying to lower the cost of entry into the formal private sector is um, they've been able to register businesses um, using the address of the incubator, but using the the, the desks that different um, companies that are, are being supported in um, in the in the startup space have. Um, uh, there's also a lot of um, work that the the World Bank is trying to launch and others uh, around actually bringing angel investors into Iraq to support um, to support businesses. So I mean, there there are lots of. There are lots of creative ways. I mean, that's that's almost a whole conversation in and of itself. But um, there there are ways um, also, especially with digital um, technologies and digital companies, there are also opportunities uh, to um, also work um, outside and and gain, um, for for Iraqi firms to, to, to work outside of Iraq and gain uh, access to finance that way um as well which is i mean there are i think there are a lot of um a lot of uh, digital citizens of estonia based in, in baghdad um because that also allows companies to use things like paypal uh and uh, other other infrastructure
0: excellent now this may be the final question given that we're running out of time and um it's a question uh, that I've posed to the author of this question or, or questions like it. So it's a kind of a squaring the circle type question he describes it. So he says your prior paper for LSE argued that major changes in the political order are impossible. I'm not quite sure did argue that or uh, with the only viable alternative being gradual incremental change. Yet here the demographic argument says that there is an ever-growing youth population that needs to be productively employed. And so the question is, does gradual incremental change provide sufficient room for the demographic attraction to take place in Iraq?
1: Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I mean, I think uh, the, 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 the what I would say is, is, is my previous paper was talking about the constraints of the system uh, to move fast. That doesn't necessarily mean that the system doesn't have to move fast. It just says that it's very difficult for the system uh, to, to to move fast. I mean, I think um, the the sort of um, Iraq's very slow demographic transition uh, has the potential to to be kind of uh, uh, you know to cause a, a great deal of. Um, stress and and disru- um, disruption to, to the to the system as it is. Um, uh, I think the maybe the slight optimistic, um, uh, the squaring of the circle is is while the system may be very slow. Um, um, you know, getting demographic transition to work isn't just about the state system; it's also about. Uh, civil society and these other actors that have proved instrumental in uh, supporting um, reproductive rights. And what we've seen in countries, notably Ir- 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 Iran, which kind of went through a demographic transition that took England and Wales more than 200 years to do in, in, in two decades, is that you can, you can, you can, uh, you can massively um, support um, reproductive rights, because that's actually, um, a lot of it is about what households do rather than relying on the state. So like, if you want to change um, economic policy or regulation or build a banking system, you need the state to mobilise and really work through it. With um, with uh, reproductive rights, it's obviously great and really helpful if the state can mobilise fast, but it's also about working directly and empowering households. So um, it's, a, it's a bit more of a mixed policy where you can actually g- get results, even if the um you know the 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 sort of policy making system is 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 slow which i i i i think it it you know it it generally is
0: maybe you found an issue uh, family planning uh, to halt or to to constrain demographic uh, growth that can be pushed through the rather uh, slow if not sclerotic decision making of the iraqi government Anyway, from that point of view, with only two minutes left, I think we have uh, three uh, thank yous to give. Firstly, thank you to Alexander for his uh, superb paper that you can now all download free of charge from the Middle East Centre website. Secondly, uh, for his, I think, very very, uh, fluid and focused um, summary of the paper. And then also his... uh, Uh, very generous and I think very detailed uh, and very interactive answering to all your questions which should lead me on to the second thank you to all the questions that were asked. I think um, even under COVID restrictions we've got a great audience for this and as I gaze down the list of people who asked questions and participated it is a who's who of um, experts on uh, Iraqi economics and uh, foreign investment in Iraq and those advising the big investors. So I thank you for coming. And I think it's now only for me to thank uh, uh, Nadine and the Middle East Centre events team for pulling this together. I think it's it's, it's, run, it's been run very well. And I think it's, it, it's, it's opened a window not only on the challenges that Iraq faces, which are, are myriad, but also I think some very straightforward and hopefully implementable Uh, ways to meet the demographic challenge through uh, family planning, uh, based on on the empowerment of households and individuals to make their own choices. So thank you very much Alexander. Uh, I'm very envious of you being in Baghdad, so enjoy your time there and um, we will see you, uh, I'm sure, before too long and we will notify uh, our audience of our next uh, discussion panel, which will be on Iraq's preparations for the uh, elections currently, uh, if not definitely scheduled for October. Thank you, Alexander. Uh, th- thank
1: you very much, Toby. And thank you, Nadine and uh, Middle East Center, and uh, obviously everyone who's uh, come and uh, listened to my, to my ramblings about uh, demography in Iraq. Um, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much.